We're talking about the Bible and race, right? And we're looking at uh, the major sections of the biblical storyline. We've covered creation, fall. We're in the redemption section now of the storyline. And so we've looked at, so far in that section, we've looked at the prophets. We looked at Israel, the prophets, and Jesus. Today we're going to look at what is what God has done through the church in the pages of Scripture. What does that have to tell us about what he thinks about race? And um, what does that have to say to us about racism today? So the, the first thing I want to point out is Jesus' marching orders for the church. If you were to look in Acts 1, and I'm going to try and go way more quickly than I did over there. So I'm not going to read the passage. But Jesus, after his resurrection, before his ascension to God the Father at the right hand, he tells the church, like, look, this is your mission. This is what I want you to be about. This is what Jesus says. He says this. Um, you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, this is Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, to the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. So Jesus was telling his father, followers, you, you are going to witness to my life, my atoning death, my resurrection. You're going to witness to my miracles and my teaching. And then Jesus says in Matthew 28, you're going to make disciples again. Check out the universal nature of the mission that Jesus has given the church. You're going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I'm always with you even to the end of the age. And so here we see the universal aspect of the mission God gave the church from the very beginning. Right? And notice who Jesus includes in his you will be my witnesses statement. Samaria. Remember talking about Samaria last Sunday? They, Jews considered them racial half-breeds, considered them religious heretics, despised them so greatly they wouldn't even travel through Samaria. Jesus is saying, church, you are going to be my witnesses, even to Samaria. Right? Universal in scope, the mission of the church. The next thing I want to mention is Jesus said, hey, I don't want you to go do anything, though, yet, because you need the Holy Spirit. I'm willing to bet that Jesus thought... If, they, my, if my 120 followers, that's about the number they had, Jesus had at that time, if they went out and tried to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, they will screw it up. And so they need to wait for the Holy Spirit to fill them so that they can actually do it. We uh, read about in Acts 2 the event when the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus' 120 followers. They're in a house, and all of a sudden... There was like fire that's, that looked like fire. It wasn't literal fire, but there was like what looked like fire coming above all of their heads. The sound of like a great rushing wind filled the house. And look at what they ended up doing. <laughs> Once the Holy Spirit filled them in that way, they started speaking in all these different languages. And guess what? This was during one of the Jewish people's major festivals. They had three of them a year. They were called pilgrimage festivals. 
uh, male Jews would come from all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem to celebrate. This one was about the wheat harvest. They were getting down over the fact that God provided wheat. Right? This was a yearly pilgrimage festival. And the city of Jerusalem would have swelled majorly in population. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. Some historians think over a million people would have been in Jerusalem. And so what happens is when Jesus' 120 followers are filled with the Spirit, they start speaking in all these different languages. And if you were going to read in Acts 2, list all these different languages they, that they started speaking in, Scholars will tell you that that was basically the known Roman world at the time. They're speaking in all the languages. And so, what ends up happening, if you were to keep reading in Acts 2, is that 3,000 people came to saving faith in Jesus Christ from hearing these different languages. They heard their language spoke, and they were speaking. Acts 2 tells us about the wonders of Christ. The wonders of God. Through Christ. 3,000 people came to faith, and that's why historians believe the house they were in had to be close to the temple because the temple was the only place where 3,000 people could gather that would be big enough for them to gather. So we see from the very beginning the church was multilingual, and these were Jews and non Jewish converts from all over the Roman Empire. It was multinational, multiracial. Right? From the very beginning of its existence. That's how it was. Now check this out. As we uh, continue on, we read about this guy Philip because not only did the message about King Jesus spread to the Roman Empire because these people that were at Pentecost surely would have went back to their homeland and told their family and friends about King Jesus. So Christianity would have begun to spread all over the Roman Empire. Not only did it spread that way, we've got food. Oh. <laughs> awesome. Hi. Hi. So good to have you here. Thank you for bringing us food. That is awesome. <laughs> She'll take care of you. That's got to be It's got to be so hard, right? You walk into a room full of people and the pastor's like we will pray for her that she still thinks good of church people after this experience. Right? Uh, that's why we need a foyer at our church right there. Right? A foyer would help. Uh, anyways, I don't even, let's see here. Oh, Philip. So, so it spreads. Christianity spreads throughout the Roman Empire. But because of what happened at Pentecost, those people go back to their hometowns. Here's another reason why it spread, though, is because there was persecution. So Christ followers started to become persecuted, which caused them to scatter all over the Roman Empire. Philip was one of those Christians. Guess where he went? Come on, you know it by now. Uh, where? No. Well, eventually, yes. Samaria. Come on. <laughs> Samaria. He goes to Sam he goes to Samaria. Either he obviously God led him there. Of all places, he goes to Samaria. And if you were to read in Acts eight nine through thirteen, you would read that a large amount of the Samaritans came to saving faith in Jesus because of Philip's ministry there and God's work through him. Again, do you think God's trying to make a point here with Samaria? 
The people that the Jews despised, he keeps bringing them up. And people keep coming to Christ that are Samaritans? Yeah. Another place Sarah was right was Philip went to, uh, he didn't really go to Ethiopia, but he witnessed to an Ethiopian who is on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza, which was the last city, town, where there was a watering hole before you got into the desert in Egypt. And that's where Philip meets this Ethiopian man. Guess what? What does Ethiopian mean? He was black. Black African man is who Philip was. And Philip, as the story goes, he's reading from Isaiah. He just went to Jerusalem to worship God. Obviously, somehow, he had heard about God, and he came all the way to Jerusalem, which would have cost so much money to have traveled to Jerusalem. And he was well-to-do because he was a high official in the Ethiopian kingdom. He was like the CFO of that kingdom. That's what the scripture seems to say. And so he had the money to do it. He had a chariot. That's unusual for somebody to be rolling around in a chariot. But he had it. He got to Jerusalem, worship God. On the way back, he's reading this scroll, Isaiah. And that's where Philip overhears him. And then this whole conversation starts. But you need to know this about this black African man. He was a eunuch. Or eunuch. I'm not sure exactly how to say it. You may, you may know. Uh, but I do know this. You know what that means. Um, it can mean official, but the, the Bible scholars I read say that the word that was used to say eunuch means he was a castrated male. What happened back in that time was some parents would have their males castrated before puberty because it would often allow them to work in a kingdom as an official, they could be in charge of the king's harem or work with women in that kingdom. The kings trusted them because of their castration. And if they weren't a threat to the, to the king because they couldn't have offspring, and so the kings didn't view them as a threat. And so parents would do this, right? But although they may have a high-ranking uh, position in the, in the kingdom, guess what? The other people didn't think too great about them because they were neither, in their eyes, a male nor they were a female in their eyes. They were an other. Nor could they protect themselves very well because they didn't have sons that they could band together with if violence broke out. And so they were really looked down upon, especially even by the Jews. Jewish law said that eunuchs couldn't go into the temple to worship God and be a part of the assembly of God's people. And so when this Ethiopian would have went to Jerusalem, at best he would have gotten no further than the outermost court of the Gentiles at the temple. And I wonder if he was saddened to find out that probably once again in his life he was rejected, potentially humiliated, and I wonder what the, he was thinking as he was traveling back home. You even sense that this, is, this might be the case in his question to Philip. If we were to read the account... This is what the Ethiopian says after he realize, realizes that what he's reading in Isaiah about the sheep being slaughtered in this lamb before its shear is silent, did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And what um, the Ethiopian comes to realize through Philip is that scripture is about Jesus Christ. And so 
Obviously, this Ethiopian is like, yes, he is the king, and he wants to get baptized, but he says this, is there anything to stop me from being baptized? I don't know for sure, but I am just thinking this Ethiopian was probably like, I probably can't, can I? I'm a eunuch, right? I'm another. Um, I've been humiliated. Notice how the, the scripture he's stuck on here is about humiliation of Jesus Christ. Here he finds this king that is actually humiliated for him, but he's still unsure. Can I be baptized? And here, what does Philip do? He, obviously, there's no objection. They, he gets baptized right away. So, here's the point that I think this, this story is making. Like um, Again, we have a black African man being viewed favorably uh, from God's word. We also have another person who is considered an other by society, the kingdom of God welcoming him, accepting him, adopting him into the family. What, uh, what's more is we see that God actually pursued this black African Gentile unit. So that led Philip to, to go to this road to meet him. Once again, we see God is for all people everywhere. If you were to go just two chapters further, you go to Acts 10, and there's the story of Peter and Cornelius. Here's the short gist of the story. Peter, he gets this vision. It's a strange vision of the animals coming down from heaven on a sheet. And God says to Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way, Lord, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because... According to Jewish law, the animals that he saw on the sheep were considered unclean. Reptiles, birds. I would have been like, no way too. Who wants to eat those sort of things, right? So, uh, God says, what I have, I, don't quote me here, but what I have made clean, like basically, don't consider unclean. And Peter's like, all right. Then, after this vision... There's Cornelius. He has he, Cornelius is a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred Roman soldiers. So this man, Cornelius, hears from God that he's supposed to send his men to Peter, bring Peter back, so that Peter can speak with him. And the way the story goes is Peter does go because he realizes he probably would have never gone to a Roman's house, let alone a Roman soldier's house. But because of this vision, he's like, God made the Romans clean. I gotta go. And so Peter goes, and the Roman centurion's whole household, which could have been 20 to 30 people, because households included slaves, extended families, they all come to faith in Jesus. And that was a lesson for Peter, right? And so again, now we have another story of somebody that the Jews would have despised, a Roman soldier, and his whole household coming to faith. Then Acts 13, and I'll just say this really quickly. We read in verse 1 about the leadership at the church at Antioch. The church at Antioch, second ever church in Christian history, north of Jerusalem where the first church was. Look at the, 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 the leadership of this church. Acts 13.1 says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, what you need to know is that Simon, or Simeon, called Niger, 
Guess what Niger needs? Black. Dark skin. And so really what uh, Luke was saying here is that you could say Simeon the black or Simeon the dark. Most commentators today all agree, uh, or most of them agree, that this was a black African man. Guess what? Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was in Africa. He might not have been black, but still, it, these people weren't from Antioch. Saul was from Tarsus. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Check this out. Manan was from Galilee. And look at who he grew up with. I didn't see this until I was studying this. He grew up with Herod. Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who massacred the infants at Jesus' birth. He's a leader in the church at Antioch. Can you believe that? Amazing! This is our God. Right? And we're only through the first 13 chapters of Acts. I mean, I don't even have time. There would be the overwhelming evidence. If we were looking at all the New Testament... And what all Paul's epistles said of, about race and the value of all people everywhere and how the gospel is for everyone. So let me just share some application with you. <clears throat> this is critical. This is critical. I'm going to say it one more time. This is critical. The gospel is just... It, the gospel is about... It's just as much about... Horizontal reconciliation as it is about vertical reconciliation. This is critical. Um, and Paul, if you were to read Ephesians 2, and maybe you did, um, in that passage, he makes it clear that the reason Jesus died was, yes, to reconcile individual sinners to God. But he also died to reconcile sinners to other sinners. And we tend to focus so solely on the fact that Jesus died to reconcile individual sinners to God. That's often the way we preach the gospel, which is absolutely true, but it's not the whole gospel. It's not the whole reason why Jesus died. There's that other part of the good news where Jesus died to create a community of people that is one and is unified and is not divided along the lines that we typically divide ourselves upon. So let's preach the whole gospel. Let's preach vertical reconciliation. Let's preach horizontal reconciliation. Um, another thing I think that is worth, th worth thinking about one of the true tests of whether there is racism in our hearts is based on the company we keep. Um, so uh, it was Peter, right? So he did this with Cornelius, Saul. Lord told him, you know, hey, Gentiles aren't unclean people. Cornelius, a Gentile, whole household, you know, comes to saving faith in Jesus. But it doesn't seem like it was too long after that that Peter reverts back to his old ways. Because in Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul calls Peter out because he would not eat with Gentile Christians. And so Paul had to tell him, like, look, you are not acting in alignment with, gospel, with the gospel. You need to change, Peter. Called him out. 
And what this spoke to me as I was thinking about this is often we don't know what's in our heart until we come into a, a close proximity, socially, in intimate ways with other people. And I think the more we move to people who don't think like us, don't look like us, aren't from the same cultures as us, don't speak the same language as us, more and more we will see uh, the ugliness in us. But we're not going to see it if the company we keep is only people that are like us and that we like and they like us. And I'm speaking to myself here. I have a lot of white friends, which is great. How, how many of you have close black friends? Like close, not just like acquaintances. How many do you have? What about people from other races? Why is this so? Why is this so for me? What can we do to move forward? You know, move towards, like Philip did, people who don't look like us. And maybe like Peter, as we do, we'll see there are some other things in our heart that need to be realigned to the gospel. Thirdly, and, and here's the last thing here, how passionate are we about all people being treated as if they matter? Philip evidently was pretty passionate about that. He went to the hated Samaritans. He is talking to the people, the, the eunuch, the black African eunuch, right? He could have said, you know what? Um, all people matter, and so you know what this this Philip over or this Ethiopian over here, you know, all people matter. So I don't really feel like I you know have to go out of my way to help them. You know, everybody matters, so I, I can just help somebody else or whatever. He doesn't. He goes towards them because you know what? Although the Phoenix they mattered, they weren't always treated like they mattered. And here's something that's really important. I believe is that there are people that I've talked to that um, for whatever, well, they, they don't like the, that statement, black lives matter. And they angrily respond and say, well, all lives matter. And so what they're saying, so I think this is the frustration for me anyways. From what I understand, and from the people I talk to, when somebody says, makes a statement, black, black lives matter, they're not saying that other lives don't matter. Only black lives matter. What they're saying is all lives matter. And guess what? Black lives haven't been treated like they matter. And if you care about all lives mattering, then you would care about black lives mattering. Look, when somebody says, and they're protesting against abortion, and they're raising signs, and if they were to raise a sign that unborn lives matter, none of us would respond angrily and say, well, all lives matter. Will we? No, because we know that these people aren't saying that unborn lives are the only lives that matter. No, they're calling to, uh, attention to the fact that unborn lives haven't always been treated as if they mattered. That's what they're doing. Same thing with uh, women who protest, you know, sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace. You know, if they say, you know, the sexually abused matter, 
Or they, we wouldn't angrily say, well, all people matter. No, that's not, what, that's not what they're saying. And if we're thinking that, we haven't listened very well. <clears throat> we haven't listened very well. Um, <clears throat> there's more. The kneelers in the National Anthem. I'm going there. <laughs> part of why I was so nervous, actually, before my sermon this morning. But I think it's something that needs to be addressed. So I know there's really strong opinions here. And I'm sure, you know, the, the human heart is desperately wicked, right? And the scriptures make that clear. And I'm sure there's some kneelers. My guess that, you know, maybe it may not have good intentions, right? But I also know there are a whole bunch of kneelers that have made it clear that the reason they are kneeling is because they love our country, they love our armed forces, and they value our country so much that they are disappointed that our country isn't functioning as it, designed, as it was designed to be, as the Constitution states. We are all created equal and all have equal right to life, liberty, and happiness. And they're calling attention to it. Why? Because they love our country. They love the armed forces that are fighting for those freedoms. And so they love the country so much, they are kneeling to call the country to become what it's always been designed to be. But I still run into people. I ran into a family member last night that... I'm not watching any more NFL games. And he has the attitude that these people, you know, they, they just disrespect our armed forces. They just disrespect our country. Um, that's what they're doing. That's their motivation. Even though kneelers have repeatedly, again, uh, I don't know about all, but there's been enough that repeatedly say, like, that's not the case. You haven't listened. When will we listen? When will we listen? And so, how much do we care that all people are treated as if they matter? I think if we do, we're going to move towards people that don't look like us, think like us, behave like us. And I think we are going to do a lot more listening and a lot less um, having... Uh, judgmental critique. Um, another thing is, too, and I'll just say this, too, when, when somebody protests that, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, and they're making that protest, um, and let's go back to the sexually harassed um, example, you know, of women or whatever. We don't say to those women, well, what were you wearing? What were you doing? Because, you know what those comments say? You're really at fault for being sexually abused. That's what the, those comments say. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for its repeated, repeated to ad nauseum. And I'm sure people are getting exhausted by this exhaustive look at what the Bible has to say about race. But I want it to be so clear to myself, and I want it to be so clear to us 
that you love all people everywhere and you can you are deeply saddened by the treatments that certain individuals have experienced in our country and you're calling us as the church that is to be unified as one people because that's what you died for that we would step up we would stand out that we would say enough is enough and we would actually do something to make sure that all people truly are cared for and have uh, the rights that they deserve because they're created in your image and have inherent value and worth because you have bestowed that upon them. And so, Lord, I continue to root out the judgmentalism that's in my own heart and I'm sure in people's hearts in this room. If there is, you know, as Peter probably didn't realize that there's still these seeds of and thoughts and, uh, and, and he still held and harbored racial biases. Lord, uh, Lord, root those out of us. If they're still in there, make them clear to us so that we can align ourselves as Paul challenged Peter to do with the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.